it's Maria, and welcome to the Breaking Up With Toxicity podcast. Thank you for being with me today. Each week, I will connect with people as they share relatable life experiences. We will talk about and at times challenge reoccurring unhealthy and toxic patterns that keep you from the changes you want to see as you break these unhealthy cycles. So let's get started and see where the show will take us today. Be sure to listen and don't forget to follow so that you never miss an episode. Hi, John. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Maria. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be back. Great. In our previous show, I picked up on a few comments that you made and that you actually found challenging. And they were things that you had experienced. One question that has uh, stuck with me was when I asked you about why you paid for that dinner and your reply was because it was the respectful thing to do. And you yourself even challenged, uh, was it the right thing to do? Is it something that you wanted to do? And it has to do with expectations. Uh, so I wanted to know if we can revisit that question again and what your thoughts were about it and how your girlfriend felt about it also. Of course. Uh, first off, uh, that, that, that specific question lingered with me and I asked myself, why did I do it, right? And I think, you know, you kind of really left me off with why? Why, right? That's the number one question. Um, I completely wasn't interested. Um, and, and I think I did it predominantly because of my, my upbringing, right? I got an older sister. I've seen her go on dates. I've seen cousins who are like sisters to me go on dates. And they're always like, yeah, well, you know, at least he paid for dinner. I didn't have to pay for dinner. It was a crappy date, blah, 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 right? And I'm just like, you know what? At least if it's something. And I kind of look back at it and like saying, oh, man, I really could have probably saved that extra hundred dollars in my pocket. <laughs> probably could have spent it on myself. Uh, or, or maybe just, you know, just thinking as far as, hey, it's just, it really does seem like the right thing to do. I just think, you know, again, like this date happened over 10 years ago. And for me at that time, that was the genuine and respectful thing that I could at least do uh, from a, you know, first date perspective and only date perspective. Right. Well, it was, it, it was what we call an expectation. So an expectation as you go out on the date and the gentleman thing to do is to pay for that date. So let me ask you something. What are expectations? Uh, ex another tough question. Expectations. <laughs> I really, I really think expectations really have to do a lot with, let's say your upbringing too. Um, I think people's expectations completely change because in a lot of cultures, people would probably think, Hey, that is the only way to do things, right? You have to pay for the woman's first uh, meal, at least, especially going out with them. But a lot of times, you know, other places, maybe it's not such a serious thing. Well, it depends what the situation is. Expectations, we all have them. They mm -hmm. are healthy. They can be unhealthy. And it's up to each individual person to decide if it's unhealthy for them or not. And that can be a struggle for many people because if um, you were going to do something with your family, there might be an expectation that you have to invite extended family. Does that really mean though that you want to do it and or you're just doing it because it's an expectation of you from what you know that's the right thing to do there's been plenty of times to where you have to send an invite because it's a core belief it's and may, maybe it's maybe it's a cultural thing too maybe it's a cultural background as well How? Too. 
How? Uh, because you technically have to invite, you know, let's say for certain people, right? You have to invite someone there because that's your direct relative. That's your first cousin. Let's, let's say, for instance, you're, you have to directly invite them to your wedding. Whereas in other cultures, a lot of it's just like, well, I don't care. I don't talk to them. Why do I need to invite them? And I think it depends on where your upbringing is. So let's say like my culture specifically, I'm inviting the world. <laughs> let's say to my wedding, <laughs> the whole world is coming. Anybody you listening go. to this, you probably can have an invitation too. just show up to the, to the <laughs> venue. All right. But <laughs> to be honest with you, it, it's different. And I, and I, I actually want to piggyback. Uh, my best friend is actually getting married uh, next year in you know, my father asked him, he was like, oh, how many people are specifically coming to your wedding? He was like, oh, you know, maybe about 200. He goes, he was like, really, 200 people just on your side? He goes, no, no, 200 combined. For and my dad, for the, for the entire event. And my, my father was like, really? He's never really heard of 200 people. 200 people is just one side of one of my parents' families. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and he was just kind of shell-shocked. And he's like, what about like your cousins and stuff? He goes, well, one side of my family, like my first cousin's over there. I don't really know them. They never even gave a chance to try and, you know, talk to me. my uncles. I know them. I don't really know their kids. So it was kind of like, why would I invite them? So you're seeing two different types of cultural, you know, upbringings, whereas one is kind of doing things like, hey, I'm doing it from this perspective of if I know you personally, and the other one is doing it more of a, a respect or a well, how's that or, re i'm gonna challenge you on this now you open this right <laughs> i open up a can of worms oh, <laughs> yeah here we go how is that respect though uh, i mean uh, try to dissect it ready i think um this is listen if it, if it was my way i i don't think i'd even i'd, I'd elope i'd probably go to like the the courthouse and save all that money on myself and go on a month-long vacation to conform it, to the expectation of of what's yes. expected of you. Yes, yeah. That that I don't think I have much of a say. I got I've got too many people against me on that one, uh, and I'm going to admit uh, that might be a fault that you've probably already seen. So uh, you're not going to be your authentic self. Let me describe something and tell me if I'm right or wrong. Let me start off with asking you: sure. Do you know what an enmeshed family is? Yeah, yeah. I, I know the example. Um, I know a little bit of it. Uh, let's say like. Uh, a mother calls her son's, you know, ex-girlfriend and asks why she broke up with him, you know, just wanting to know the information or like just pretty much being nosy. Uh, that's kind of like what my, uh, my example is as far as it goes. Mm -hmm. And a meshed family is common with actually many different ethnicities. And it mm -hmm. describes a family that, uh, a relationship of a family that lacks boundaries. Right. The roles and expectations of each person, it can get confusing where parents do overstep boundaries and they can be sometimes even inappropriate sharing too much personal information. They're looking for support from their children and their children. Usually what happens is their children are not really taught or allowed to be emotionally independent for themselves away from mm -hmm. their parents. How do I want to say this? Fuse like together. So they don't respect privacy. They, like I said earlier, they rely on children for their emotional support. Most children do not get to make decisions. They may make some, but overall their decision, the decisions are made for them. Their children are not encouraged, encouraged to explore their own identities.
sometimes immaturity lasts a little bit longer. It's because the parents didn't allow their kids to separate from them, giving mm -hmm. that independence and confidence. So yep. does that sound familiar to you? Uh, yeah, in a sense. In a sense, yes. Um, I think with the whole inviting, right? We go back to the story as far as inviting for my buddy's wedding or or let's say my wedding, whatever. I'm not even engaged yet to the funny part. <laughs> and already, already, everybody's already all talking about that. Uh, but again, the whole thing is, oh, we got to invite so-and-so. I haven't seen them in 10 years. Why do I have to invite them? Oh, it's out of respect. And that's who's them. Res who's of, respect? That, it's theirs. It's theirs. It's their, you know, it, again, for me, it's like, a, I don't know. I don't necessarily know. I don't know this person. Why would I want them at my place? I agree with my best friend. Um, so, so I'm kind of in the middle of the roads and I, I, you know, I, I think I'll win a few battles here and there when the, the seating arrangements and, and invitations go out. But as far as anything else, uh, I might be losing a few battles there. And I think it's has to go with the involvement of my parents in my life. As far as saying, like you just mentioned with the enmeshment, you know, not letting go and not letting them, you know, letting their specific kids be, you know, that person or what they truly can be or like you know let me be you know let me be that flower i want to be so to say it's not let you it's let them be yeah yes no maybe maybe because it's maybe. not about I, you you know this no it's not i think i think again it's it's more about them and, and it's because you know when they were getting married you can probably attest to this they when they were getting married they didn't have no say to who the heck got invited to their wedding. So now it's like, oh, now I'm going to, I'm going to do this, this way. I want to do it that way. And there it's like their involvement. It's kind of like them living their lives through their children. To an extent for various different reasons. I'm going to go back to enmeshment. Do you know where enmeshment comes from? No. More likely than not. And I'm not saying this is all the time, but it is a higher probability. It happens with people who had traumatic upbringings and now trauma that's that varies because that means something different for everyone it can be um a physical injury it can be a natural disaster an accident an accident a job loss anything assault abuse is one mm -hmm. of them whether verbal psychological sexual and because it happens to, you know, a person, it doesn't necessarily mean it will impact their quality of life, but maybe for somebody else it does. So trauma impacts everyone differently. Adolescent was bullied in school. Some kids, you know, they grow up and they don't care. Other people, it, it has impacted them. Why does it impact some people more than others? Because it has to do with your environment. And within your environment is your family, what mm. they will project onto you. Now, talking, let's say your parents' generation, most people didn't have the support or the opportunity to address whatever trauma they experienced in their lives. So growing up, they did the best of what they knew and had uh, the ability to make whatever changes that they could, but staying within what was expected, but not really understanding where is this expectation coming from? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Trauma does a lot of things for people. And 
It's the severity of the trauma that impacts somebody. And trauma can be inflicted by words. And why I'm bringing up words is because within our culture, there was and still is a very high rate of narcissistic personality and borderline personality. Most people focus on narcissistic personality. And so somebody's narcissistic. We know what they do. We know exactly what to expect of them. You know, those, right. So we do know what the harm, the harm that they cause on people and the people that they cause this onto are people who usually have had trauma in their own life, have a, um, what we call anxious attachments, codependencies, and various other things, which eventually maybe we'll get into. Mm-hmm. let's take a look at i'm briefly going to talk about it borderline personality that's usually been associated mostly with women and one of the reasons is because more women do go to therapy for it men usually don't however what i've recognized even within our own culture and with you know people that i work with there to me there are more men that are borderline personality than there are narcissistic but it, it's like disguised. Why is that though? Why is that though? Um, because with borderline, it actually is somewhat of a challenging diagnosis because it overlaps with other symptoms. And usually if, um, if an adolescent goes to therapy when they're younger, a lot of the times it's for some sort of behavioral issue that's going or concern that's going on. The most common is ADHD. Now they will have that diagnosis throughout adolescence, you know, teenage years and into adulthood. So they're thinking I have ADHD. However, most adolescents that are diagnosed with ADHD are actually borderline personality in adulthood. And the reason why it's in adulthood, it's because symptoms trigger And it's also an age thing Like you can't diagnose somebody with um, a certain diagnosis when it's um, an adult diagnosis, even though you recognize the symptoms that are there a long time ago. So in adulthood, men won't go to therapy. They're thinking, well, this is normal. This is how it's supposed to be. Like say when they get angry or their mood shifts or Mm -hmm. they have a tendency to be in and out of relationships or it's like poor me. It depends, you know, on, on the spectrum that they're on because there is a spectrum. And along with that diagnosis, it is not uncommon for men to have a co-occurring diagnosis of intermittent explosive disorder, traits of narcissistic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder, which is the most extreme. There are not many people that, um, have that diagnosis. Why does this all matter? And why am I bringing it up? Yeah, I actually brought it up because you're talking about your friend with the wedding. And as we started off with these expectations, these expectations come out from somewhere, they develop or they they are ingrained in, in us because of, you know, various different reasons. Some of them do tie back to trauma. Because when you have an individual that has um, experienced trauma, they project that onto you. For example, your parents, either your mother or your father, Mm -hmm. was constantly yelled at 
when they're younger. They were not physically abused. They were emotionally, psychologically. Maybe they were constantly yelled at and screamed at. Maybe when they got upset, a parent didn't really give them all the attention. Maybe sometimes they maybe gave them a hug when they needed it. And then other times they didn't. So it wasn't very consistent. Yeah. When it's sporadic like that, what what the child learns is that I'm not sure if my parent's going to be there or if they're not going to be there. So what this does is it doesn't give that emotional need that that child needs. So mm-hmm. they will become most of the, many of the time in distress or they may actually even be anxious because they're not sure what to expect, right? So this, when parents don't have a regular pattern of comforting their children, what it does create in that child in adolescence, early adulthood, and then into late adulthood is that that child usually has, is codependent, okay? Mm -hmm. They may have fears of abandonment. They may be jealous. They may be people pleasers. They could also have uh, low self-esteem. They have problems trusting other people. And they may need constant validation. That's called anxious attachment. That develops with how your parents treat treat you emotionally. Mm -hmm. Those symptoms correlate to borderline personality disorder. Those wow. are similar. There is a, a few more, but I can't get in, you know, into all of that yeah, right of now. Let's say when a child was angry mm-hmm. and the parent reassured them and they maybe spoke to them through whatever they're feeling. But then again, next time it happened, they kind of dismissed it. You know, like, you'll get over it. You'll be fine. Nobody thinks about something like that because people will say, well, you know, I was there and when I was busy, I couldn't. But the impact that it has on somebody emotionally does not surface until adulthood. And people can follow these patterns. That's correct. There are extreme attachment di- um, attachment styles. Those are not diagnoses. Additionally, in adulthood, someone who has an anxious attachment style, they may they may complicate relationships. They don't intentionally want to do, but they do it because they're, they have such a fear of being abandoned and not being validated. When you hear people talk about their relationships and say, whether it's your, you know, husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, whoever this may be, they'll say, wow, they always constantly are calling and texting me and, you know, they don't stop or Mm -hmm. they're always checking my social media or they always want to know where I'm going with what friends, with which friends I'm going with because of their insecurity. In addition to someone being anxious, we have what we call avoidant attachment style. So there was, there wasn't emotional support by a parent. And what that means is the parent basically provided just what they needed to. They fed you, they clothed you, they took you to school and they took you to the doctor when you needed, they didn't provide an emotional connection with you. Where Remember, with anxious, they did it on and off. Mm-hmm. With avoidant, they really did very little about it. So you so, kind of knew what to expect almost from them, right? Somewhat. These are the kids where they're not going to be really upset if you leave them. Mm-hmm. They'll all stay with somebody else. Got you. 
they don't sense. really have a preference between their parent and like let's say a, tr- a stranger they're like free loathing whatever it is like pretty much kind of like, like just Whoever will give them attention, pretty much. Whatever it is. Somewhat, right, right. But they guard themselves at the same time. Mm -hmm. These kids, when they become angry or they cry, usually they're shamed for it. Stop crying, big boy. They're usually turning down or devaluing that child's emotion. And that's what happens to them. So now when these kids grow up, what happens is that they repeat the cycle. Even with anxious attachment, they do it to their partner and to their kids. There's one last one, which is the fearful avoidant, which is a combination of both of those two. This is the most extreme, severe. This is where basically there was total emotional neglect. Total emotional neglect, like not even acknowledging their kid of, of any sort or just like bare minimum or, or even below bare minimum. Pretty much bare because you at with this type of attachment style, that parent was not emotionally available. Where the first one, the the parent also had an anxious attachment. The second one, the parent they picked, you know, they picked and they picked and chose right when Mm -hmm. they were available. This one, they're not available. Gotcha. Thank you for joining us today and being part of the show. Today, I continued the conversation with John. As we delve into learning about who he is and his journey of discovering himself, we spoke about what enmeshed families are, attachment styles, trauma, and living your authentic self. John is continuing to learn more about himself, recognizing what his role is in life. Is he following expectations more than he realizes? Continue and follow us. Join us on our next episode as we continue unraveling who John is.